Hi, I'm Joel. This is Creativity Pulse, a podcast where we dive into the cool waters of creativity and cruise around some creative thinking, evolution of ideas, and innovation that currently exists in a variety of industries and businesses, big and small. For those of you just joining us, there are two weekly episodes, the first with a guest and a second weekly roundup. This links the week's conversation to some creativity stuff. It includes some practical hints to help you exercise, flex, and build your creative mental muscle. Here we are on the Creativity Pulse. Who are you? Where are you from? And what do you do? All right. Um, my name is Josh Moulton. Um, I am a my professional title is a, a senior strategy and organizational development consultant with with Strategy Matters. Uh, where am I from? So I, the the medium length answer is uh, I spent my early childhood in Indonesia, moved to the U.S. and spent most of my growing up years there, and now I live in a, a small city or town called Puerto Escondido, which is on the South Pacific coast of Oaxaca in Mexico. You said that you were in business consulting, and I know that requires a certain level of innovative thinking, evolution of ideas, creativity, whatever you want to sort of call it. Um, tell us about your sort of daily routines and the type of people that you deal with, and if you have any sort of systems that help you to differentiate the company, you know, strategy matters. Yeah, sure. So uh, maybe taking a step back from that before going into that that detail, just a little kind of context setting. So, um, so I I do have a background in uh, in academia. I spent a number of years uh, being a philosopher, <laughs> you know. And I think you know there, there's lots of jokes like, well, what do you do as a philosopher? You sit around and think deep thoughts about being unemployed. And I mean, there's, you know, certainly, you know, there are some kernels of truth to that, but I, I think really um, that has been a huge uh, part of what's enabled me to make contributions to wherever I find myself um, professionally and also in other, in other places. I think that sort of um, being able to uh, assess and construct conceptual frameworks that help you accomplish things that you want to accomplish has been really important. So, so for me, I have a professional life where I'm a strategy consultant. Um, I have this background in philosophy that's, I think, to me, really important. Um, I also am an uh, electronic music producer and, and also do some performance. And I have this background in competitive strength sports. And so it's a kind of a weird collection of, of things. But uh, for me... It, when I'm doing my best work creatively, it's when I'm finding a way to put all of those important parts of myself into conversation with one another. Um, it won't always be, I think, apparent that, that I'm drawing from these four kind of areas. Uh, but for me, I've noticed that when I'm producing at a high level, it's because I found a way to integrate these different aspects of, of myself uh, and draw from my experiences in a way that... Uh, doesn't require me to kind of compartmentalize these different ways of being. Josh and I have very similar backgrounds regarding our childhoods and spoke about certain areas of the world having a certain dynamic or intense feeling to them. 
I put this to Josh in relation to his moving recently from Boston in the States to Puerto Escondido in Mexico. Josh had this to say about it. There is. You know, the interesting thing to me about the dynamic is that uh, it's kind of part of the, the vibe of the whole area is this sort of intensity. Um, not everybody that's here is, is here just for the surfing, but I think most of the people that end up here are really intense about something. Um, it's not always the surfing. Like there's a, a big martial arts community here. A lot of people that do various kinds of like yoga and acrobatics and CrossFit and, and lots of different things uh, with, with a pretty high level of intensity. Um, interestingly, I think there's... I think there are some professionals that that come out of Puerto that either come here and become professional or are professionals and make their way here. But it's also a place, I think, where you find a lot of extremely high level amateurs in a lot of different areas, which is an interesting dynamic because they haven't really fallen into the trappings of, of being professionals in whatever the thing is that they do, but they have that same level of skill. Uh, so I, I feel like I bump into a lot of people like that who, you know, have competed at a high level in various things or, uh, you know, are really accomplished in their, in their career and uh, are here to kind of go deeper into the things that they're interested in and have a, a kind of relaxed lifestyle at the same time. Josh and I unfortunately had some technical issues. That's techie speak for the internet and one of our computers going south. At the time, we were talking about the pandemic's impact on businesses and the potential for so-called social threats impacting people's performance. This is what Josh had to say. We're talking about, I think, social threat in organizations and the relationship between social threat and creativity. And um, I think the the point that I wanted to make is that... um, you know, during the, the pandemic, which I, I guess, you know, we're, we're still in some part of it. I don't know if we're really post-pandemic yet, but um, in any event, during the peak of, of everybody's anxiety and, and you know, the tragedy of it, of it all and, and, you know, the when it was the only thing that was in the news and the only thing on people's minds, we had an extremely high level of kind of background threat, you know, that people are sensitive to. And when you have that, um, you have people that don't have a lot of cognitive resources left to devote to other things like creativity, for example. Um, now, I think that sort of the same idea is replicated in lots of organizational contexts. I think the way that, that lots of traditionally, uh, a traditionally uh, assembled organizations function, you have people walking around essentially near their threat threshold. And if you have people walking around near their threat threshold, again, cognitive resources are going to assessing, um, managing and mitigating threat. They're not going to, uh, create to being creative. Um, in, in short, you have people that are going to be kind of chronically underperforming. Um, so where does that come from and, and what can you do about it? So I think, uh, I think where it comes from are three really kind of broad categories of things. Um, I think you have uh, traditionally assembled organizations. And by that, I mean ones with a very definite hierarchy level, ones with kind of traditional compensation schemes, traditional decision-making processes. 
Uh, I think what happens in those organizations very often is that you have very, very little trust between different layers of management and then certainly between people in management positions and people in either service provision uh, positions or, you know, frontline positions or however you want to, however you want to put that, um, you have not much trust happening. And I think when you have not much trust happening, you have people that are walking around trying to assess their level of social threat. Um, you know, am I, am I safe here? Am I valued here? Um, do people see what my contributions are? Maybe some, you know, internal concerns like, am I up to the task of this job? Uh, and so on. So if you're, if you're walking around in that mode, you don't have cognitive resources left to devote to, to things that are more interesting, you know, like creativity and solutions and actually producing at the, at the best of your ability. Uh, so I think that, that this dynamic really just comes from some structural things like traditional power structures and organizations where you have, uh, you know, people in management positions that are very guarding of their positions. And I think it also comes from the, the way that decisions are made, oftentimes by just folks in the C-suite, for example, without really bringing in stakeholders in a meaningful way. And then also, we see this a lot, I think, in, for example, law firms um, and other professional services firms, the compensation schemes. They're very like individualistically driven. And I, I don't think that you have to go all the way to the other side and have everything be kind of a perfect democracy or, or uh, completely socialistic or communistic. That's not necessarily a solution there. I mean, maybe it, would, maybe it is one way to do it. Um, but there's a lot of space that's, um, I think from where the, the way that many organizations are structured now to something where essentially you could have a lot more trust and therefore a lot lower level of social threat perception on the part of people in the organization and therefore a lot more cognitive resources available to produce interesting things. Um, and what that I think would require is basically people in management positions being secure, mature adults. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it than that. You know, it's like, I think so much of this stuff is driven by, by personal insecurities that are then kind of doubled down upon by the way that we structure organizations. And I think traditional power structures really are there just to basically reinforce, you know, insecurities that people never learn to grow out of. When Josh and I were rudely interrupted by our computer failure, we also talked about the pandemic's impact on the creative process. And this is what Josh had to say. Kind of zooming back in now to the question about the, the creative process, um, I think well, a few things, and we can stitch these together as we go. But I think, number one, during the pandemic, when everything went virtual, I think we observed a huge hit to uh, our creative process and to what we were able to achieve as a team together. And I think one of the things that became immediately obvious is that there's a lot that's hard to quantify and even hard to notice about that goes into uh, co-creation when you're doing create, you know, a creative process as a group of people, so much of it that's, that's not, um, that's not just speaking. <laughs> okay. So like you can, the speaking part works pretty well when you're virtual, maybe not as well as in person, perhaps for some people, there's some advantages to, to, to virtual, um, you know, if people are on the more introverted side of the spectrum, maybe virtual sometimes works really well. But I, I, my experience has been 
that there's a huge hit to the creative process when you're not actually inhabiting the same physical space as other people. Uh, I think there's so many cues that you draw on um, in communication that, that are not just verbal. You know, there's obviously things about body language, the way that you are, the way that you're just physically taking up space in a space that you're sharing with other people, that there's a lot that goes on communication wise that goes into creativity. I think that's part of the creative process that you're, that you're missing when you're not doing that. And so just these moments of, of not working specifically on a project when you're with colleagues uh, and finding things to laugh about disengaging from things that are, that are um, stressful and, and outcomes focused I think those are extremely important parts of a background for creativity that oftentimes just sort of get lost. Um, things that are at a kind of deep relational level. And again, I think we all, especially the kids with lockdown, schools being shut and going online, I think there was a huge knock for their psyche in just literally from creation of things through to social um, exposure and that sort of stuff but it's interesting you say about the short-termism I mean there's something that we've been suffering I think in business for it's been building up in the respect of you know you look at like the Nasdaq you know every three months you're assessed you don't have a chance to have a long-term plan going back to what we were saying about the five you know year plan it's like how do I have a five-year plan when I'm assessed every three months I mean what were the things you know if you had to choose sort of three things out of not being in the same room as people, you said that you suffered from the lack of creativity or your creativity as a team got dented. Would you literally say it was not being in the same room as those people and being able to read them? There's not enough attention to to background relational things and a, a big focus on outcomes, which of course, you know, if you're an organization and you need to produce an outcome, you have to be somewhat focused on that. But you're leaving a lot on the table, I think, if you're not also paying attention to some of these more challenging to quantify things, um, relational aspects, ways of people occupying space together that will um, kind of come together to create an atmosphere of creativity. Your brain is not going to be in a mode to, to associate ideas and come up with creative solutions if you're constantly in this mode of trying to assess and then manage or um, detract from the ability to be creative. And I think it's that you have a relationship between management and other employees or even relationships among different levels of management that uh, that underwrite a high level of distrust. Do you think that there is, I mean, it's been around for decades, that everybody rises to a level of major incompetence and then stays there? And then they sort of desperately try and find some way of retaining their position because they're sort of on the attack, trying to get the person's job above them. But they're playing a defensive game as well, because obviously someone's attacking them from below. So that sort of ties in. Do you think that that sort of old adage of, you know, everybody rises to a level of incompetence and then you end up with a company that's effectively dysfunctional? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that that can happen. Um, I, I certainly uh, come across great leaders in my work, people that are clearly extremely competent. And um, uh, actually, this reminds me of this this concept of leadership. Um, 
I'm blanking on who to attribute this to. Uh, but the, basically the idea is that you need to have both warmth and you need to have competence. So warmth is basically your ability to manage interpersonal relationships in a way that reduces perceived social threat by the people that you engage with. You know, so and put it in a really simple terms. Hey, I see who you are. I care about you. Um, and then competence says, look, I have the skills it takes to do this job well. Um, I can, this, I have what it takes to do this. If you have the combination of those two things, and you could do this in a, in a lot more of a granular approach, but if you have those two things, if you, if you communicate to the people around you that you care about them and that they don't have to worry that much about various threats, and you know what you're doing, you actually have the, the tools to, to do whatever your job is. That makes typically a pretty strong leader, and it typically creates an environment where people are not rising to the level of their incompetence, but are, are valued in positions where they are most competent. Um, and I think that that, so certainly, again, I see, I, you know, we see this manifest in various ways, this idea of people rising to the level of their incompetence. Um, I think in traditionally structured organizations, uh, um, the structure and compensation scheme and decision-making processes of those organizations reinforce that. Um, but even in, in organizations that are put together pretty well, you know, we have, uh, you know, the, the Peter principle, right? So you have people that are, are, for example, in a human services organization, really good at, at, at do, providing a service to, um, to their clients, and they're observed by supervisors as being so good at their job, so they're promoted, right? And then they're promoted into a management position where they no longer are, have access to the skills that made them good at what they were doing in the first place. Now they have to have a whole new set of skills. Instead of being a really good, for example, uh, clinician working with somebody who's you know dealing with substance use disorders or something, they're instead in a position of having to manage other clinicians. And that's a totally different skill set. I mean, maybe that one has some some carryover, but it's in general a different skill set. Um, and we see this actually. We we do a lot of work in policing organizations, and one of the things that happens very often there is you have a, you know somebody that's in a, a patrol officer position who's really good at their job, so they're promoted to a sergeant. And the job of a sergeant is really to manage patrol officers; it's not to be on patrol themselves. And this is an extremely high stakes uh, kind of node in an organization. Where you have people that are, you know, kind of, I guess you'd say kind of lower level managers that are in charge of managing the people who are providing the critical service. In this case, you know, policing or other first responder type situations where it's a, literally a matter of life and death a lot of the time. So those people who are those first level of management, they have to be good leaders. They have to be good leaders or things are just going to go wrong. Um, and I think that a lot of our work really... It, uh, is in support of that layer of leadership. I think all layers of leadership we, we do work with, but in particular that level of leadership where it's people that have, because of some, some skills and competencies that they have been promoted into a position where they're now in charge of leading others and don't have the background knowledge uh, related to leadership. And in a policing context, actually, some of the things that might have made them good at being on a patrol officer actually might make them not so good at, at being a leader of, 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 uh, of their team members. So, um, you know, that's a place that, that we focus a lot of attention and effort there is trying to develop leadership. I think it's interesting that Peter principle, the 
uh, years ago. This is in the early 90s. I worked for Canon and they actually got rid of the idea that the best salespeople were, made the best managers on the basis that the idea was really simple. Why would you take your best performer, you know, why would you take Cristiano Ronaldo off the field and turn him into a manager? Um, and I think you, again, using a sort of football, the idea that there was Alex Ferguson, you know, the manager of Manchester United, he, he, he was, I think he was a defender for Dunfermline. Um, I'm not too sure he could tie his uh, shoelaces particularly well, but he was considered to be one of the best managers in the world. So, you know, wonderful. But it's interesting on the concept of leadership. Uh, it seemed to me from what you were describing, it's sort of like a great marriage or a great parent. You need a level of competence that you learn and you also have that sort of level of emotional caring that allows the other person to trust you. So do you think leaders have to be sort of, you know, almost consider themselves to be in a marriage and to be a parent? Yeah, you know, I think I, I, two things. Two things. One, more or less, yeah. <laughs> and then two, I think I would be careful if I was with my clients to, about using that language. Just because if you are, if, you know, if, if I, if I would start to communicate that language to a client and they're in a leadership position in their organization and then they start to talk about themselves like that, <laughs> I mean, that, that's a recipe for having employees feel like they're being kind of demeaned, you know, like, oh, now we're in this highly paternalistic organization and the, so like, I, but that's just a, that's a, that's like a, that's a marketing problem. Um, I wouldn't put it in that way, uh, but for them, but basically, yes, I think th that you have, um, ways of communicating the, you know, caring and then ways of being competent at your job. And if you have, um, you know, if you have those two things, then I think you're in a position to be a, a strong leader. I think basically it really does come down to that. And I think you can have people fail on either side. You could have people that are, are not cut. They're, you know, really caring, but they're not competent in their job. And a competence, I think in a leadership position, oftentimes being able to means having to be able to make difficult decisions, but doing it in the best way possible. And so I think one of the ways that you can do that, and I, you know, there's lots of research that people have uh, a much better time accepting a decision where there's an outcome they don't like if they see how the decision was made and they think the process was fair, right? So, you know, they can accept the bad outcome or the outcome they don't really want a lot more easily if they can see the process and see that the process was, was basically a fair one. So I think that's just a very simple thing that organizational leaders can do sometimes is to be a bit more open about decision-making processes and have what it takes to, to make a decision that might not be the one that people want, but explain how you made it and why you made it, and then just just stick to it. Um, I think I think that that oftentimes is much more humane than trying to kind of shift around and find something that's somehow going to satisfy everybody. In the process, I think you you actually will erode trust um, if you slide around too much in your decision making process as a leader. Um, I don't know if that answered the question, but I think basically, <laughs> basically, yes. I mean, I think you do need to communicate, um, caring in a leadership position. 
And of course, there's probably boundaries around the right way to do that. And it probably depends on what industry you're in, maybe lots of other things too. But there are ways to communicate um, care for the people that you work with. And that's an important part of the recipe. In part two of this episode, I'll be speaking to Josh about his musical ventures and interests and the processes he follows. Interestingly, and not giving the game away here, he extrapolates this process into all aspects of his life. It's worth listening to the man explain his methods and philosophy. Until next week, have a great one this week and be as creative as you can. Don't forget to have a look at the website. You'll find some stuff to help you develop your creative abilities. I'm Joel. Who are you? Where do you come from? And what do you do?